Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Well... We have big news. Yes, I've broken and entered your house. Yeah, I'm, I'm still in uh, Salford in the Treble Tavern. Y- you are in my house. You've not been rummaging around, have you? I have to see things I've found extraordinary. So the big news is that you've broken and entered, yes. Um, but the, the only slightly smaller news is that we're going back on stage. Oh, we're really looking forward to it, aren't we? It's been too yeah, long. It's been too it has long. It's been too long. It's been and ages. we've been we've had lots of people asking us, but just one thing and another, we haven't quite got round to it. But May and June, uh, its first two shows were at the um, Underbelly, which is a festival on the South Bank. That's right in London, and it's going to be on a Sunday afternoon. Both shows are on Sunday afternoons at half past three, which I think is a very civilized time. Yep. You can go and have yourself a bit of Sunday lunch, and then come and feed your brain. Uh, with us at Reasons to be Cheerful Live. And your funny bone. And I think we should take it up a notch this time. Take it up a notch? What what, what are you thinking? I'm thinking dance routines. Really? Surely you must have been asked to do Strictly Come Dancing. I think I have been, yeah, but I've said no. So this could be the public's chance to see the poetry of your elegant frame in motion. No, I tell you what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, you know, we had this idea ages ago. Lots of, We have lots of good ideas, but people get to sort of say how they change the world in a minute. Yes. Do you think a minute's a bit long? Well, we've had a long discussion about that, whether you wanted 15 seconds. Yeah, should we split the difference? Should we say 30 seconds? 30 seconds. So change the world in 30 seconds. Yeah, your idea to change the world or how you have changed the world in 30 seconds. And and you think we couldn't do that and a dance routine? You can do the dancing. Your wife's actually quite good at dancing. Yeah, she's not welcome at a lot of wedding receptions because she tends to uh, upstage the bride. Right, we're yeah. getting off the point. Okay. Uh, uh, so <laughs> I'm just thinking about the theatrics yep, of it. Yep. That, so that, where can people find all. out how to buy tickets? Well, I think that the best thing you could do is go on the Underbelly Festival website, which is underbellyfestival.com. And if you have a rummage around on there, you'll find a link to buy tickets. And we're really excited. It's a great location to be doing the live shows. Bigger, bigger, better, brassier. Yeah, and if you if you heard the live shows from last year, some of them, I mean, all of them were special, but some of them were just Yeah, okay, I think we get the point. Uh, Try to ramp up the excitement. Yeah, I'm ramped. Okay. All right, so this week's episode then, what what are we talking about? Well, we're going to be talking this week about something to do with this. Now, I know, I know, I know he doesn't want to. I I know he doesn't want to talk about pre-distribution, but I've done a little work, Mr Speaker. I can tell him about his new guru. His new guru is called, I'm not making this up, the man who invented pre-distribution. He's called Mr Jay Hacker. And, uh, but in the work I've done, I've discovered his new book. It is published by Princeton University Press, and it's called The Road to Nowhere. What a great wit was David Cameron. I mean, you, you must admit, twerp. I know. I, I, 
I know it's Prime Minister's Question Time stirs up some traumatic memories for you, but the, the level of humour there, making fun of a man's name because it sounds similar to, but not the same as, a character in a sitcom. I know, I know. So we're going to be talking, we're, we're, we're going to be getting our own back. We're going to be talking about pre-distribution. What does it that, make? That used to be one of your old catchphrases. Well, catchphrase, I don't, I'm not sure about catchphrase. But you know, the funny thing about it, Jeff, is I put it in a speech as a sort of, just a kind of throwaway remark and suddenly it like became my you know this is like your new slogan it's so incomprehensible typical of ed i mean it was like it it was such a sort of accidental sort of sort of fuck up really um but anyway the idea is really important which is the, the 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 thinking behind it is if all you do is redistribute through a tax and benefit system you've got this massive unfairness in the economy and taxes and benefits can't do enough to really make things fair. So what do you do about the way the economy is organised to make it fairer? And we're going to be talking about it with Mr. Jay Hacker himself. He's actually called Jacob Hacker. With Roberto Unger, a very famous political theorist, and then two people from an organisation called Nesta, the National Endowment for Science, Technology and the Arts, which has been working on this issue. And we're joined by comedian Carmen Lynch, who's going to be pitching us some ideas, which could be reasons to be cheerful. What's your reason to be cheerful? People will be sick of hearing this, but I'm so excited that Game of Thrones is back on the telly. I'm sick of hearing it. People who don't watch it, they're so quick to tell you that they don't watch it. Who's your favourite character? Probably the Night King. Um, there's a, a little a little thing there, for a little in joke for the Game of Thrones watchers. I don't know if we have a collective name or not, but I mean, I, I love it so much that I went to... Um, I'm in Salford now uh, doing some work. I went to Chicago last weekend and on my way back from um, Chicago to Manchester via London, I popped into my house so that I could watch it on a big telly instead of a computer screen. That's how excited I was. I just came home for an hour and 10 minutes to watch telly. Yeah, that's pretty weird. Uh, right. Uh, <laughs> what's, what's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is Pilates. Oh. So I did my Ooh. first ever Pilates this week because I've been having problems with my back. And so um, the, the osteopath I saw said, look, you should go to Pilates. And it was really good. I really? Can you tell, tell me a bit more about it? Well, lots of stretching. You don't have to do all that namaste business that you do in yoga. So that was kind of a bonus. Let, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Does it? And does No offence uh, to the yoga yoga practices, <laughs> practitioners out there. Does, does it exacerbate any flatulence issues you might be having no i hadn't noticed that my, my understanding was anything sort of in the realm of yoga and pilates if you were a gassy person uh, well, it could be not... quite a dangerous it could be quite a dangerous environment why are you calling me a gassy person <laughs> Fuck, man. i mean like what, what what gives you the right to say i'm a gassy person reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd on the line now, we have Professor Jacob Hacker, who is Director of the Institution for Social and Policy Studies at Yale University. Uh, Jacob, thank you so much for joining us. We just played a clip of David Cameron attacking you in Prime Minister's Question Time back in September of 2012. We, we heard that just a little earlier in the podcast. What, what was it like to be roped into the cut and thrust of British politics? And perhaps more importantly, have, have you ever forgiven Ed? 
for that. <laughs> Jay Hacker. Oh, I, I definitely – I wonder if Ed will ever forgive me for, for making him the butt of so many jokes about pre-distribution. Um, but, yeah, I, it was a surreal experience. And, you know, there's a – among progressives in the United States, there's kind of a, uh, a joke that it's a badge of honor to be attacked on the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Um, so I guess I took it to a new level by getting attacked <laughs> by a conservative MP on the floor of the House of Commons. Um, there are two two quick reactions I had. One was, "Why is everyone laughing at the fact that my name is Jay Jay Hacker?" Yeah, it doesn't uh, doesn't speak well for the level of British repartee in Parliament, does it? Well, if, you know, um, let's just say my familiarity with with British uh, uh, popular culture is limited to Monty Python. And uh, and then the second um, the second thing that I I thought was, well, if he was going to mention a book by me, why wouldn't he mention a, a somewhat more recent book? So it would actually uh, boost my sales. <laughs> so can you, can you explain the basic ideas behind pre-distribution? Yeah, so basically I think pre-distribution is, I mean, the, the summary of it is that it's um, trying to make markets more equal and empowering even before... Um, government steps in and provides benefits or taxes citizens and and so it's it's about mar- making markets more fair and and well operating uh, instead of just trying to clean up afterwards and and I think that you know for a lot of good reasons for about twenty five years the left um, chat chastened by you know a variety of pretty uh, powerful forces the decline of labor the collapse of some of the of the 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 sort of communist models that had been linked to them and uh and the fact that there was this powerful free market credo that was sweeping through um uh economics and conservative politics that for a variety of reasons uh, the left basically embraced the idea that we can make uh make up for uh, markets that aren't working well um, by basically providing a generous welfare state. So, you know, softening the sharp edges of capitalism. And and the problem is, is that at the same time as the left was trying to soften the sharp edges of capitalism, the capitalists and the conservatives who were uh, redesigning policies in their name were basically sharpening <laughs> the edges of capitalism. But I think it's really important to understand that this is a this has to be a big shift uh, in progressive thinking, and at its root is the idea that um, that w- we have to recognize that markets are constructed by politics, and that some markets uh, produce much more unstable, unequal, and um, and you know ultimately inhumane outcomes than do others. So, to me, there's basically two big categories of pre-distribution policies. Um, one, which I sort of would call the long-term um, pre-distribution approach, which is really about revitalizing um, the, um, the the skills and opportunity of large portions of the population, which is a, at least a generation long uh, project. And I can talk about that in a moment. But the other one, the, the things that can get done right away are basically about um, empowering workers and restructuring the way in which uh, corporations, in particular, work uh, so that um, so that there's a there so that companies are producing a lot less inequality and a lot uh, fewer negative effects for the rest of society. But perhaps it would be useful for our listeners. You said there were two categories 
to pre-distribution, essentially. Do you want to just say a little bit more about what policies might be pursued under each category? Sure. Yeah. So, so if you think about um, if you think about the sort of classic pre-distribution policies, because this is something that people have been thinking about, even if they haven't been calling it pre-distribution, they are long-term policies that are about investing in uh, human capital, uh, in research and development. Uh, and skills. And I think that's very important, even though uh, I think that we're going to have to do it in a way that's mindful that just putting more resources into education is actually often exacerbating the inequalities of opportunity we see. We're going to have to lean very heavily against the reproduction of advantage that is um, occurring through our education uh, and skills systems. But, you know, for me, that would mean a huge emphasis on early childhood education, lots more effort to try to provide workers with with the opportunity for lifetime retraining, um, much more emphasis on vocational education, um, and which is something that the U.S. is um, really, um, really downplayed. Uh, and it also would mean, and here's to kind of move a little bit away from the standard um, policies for kind of, um, you know, making workers more capable of it, of 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 succeeding in a in a global knowledge economy, it's also I think going to mean that our investments in research and development, which in the U.S. and other rich countries are huge, have to be done with a mi- with a mindfulness of what the long term effects of those changes are. So category two, and these are things I think that could make a big difference quickly and over the long term, would be uh, would include. Um, you know, much more emphasis on worker and consumer empowerment, um, particularly in the um, in the information economy. I mean, the way in which we've set up um, the the role of sort of digital uh, the digital economy and the way it operates is really unfavorable towards uh, towards ordinary citizens and really favorable towards um, the the sort of super rich who control the technology. So. Workers need new kinds of uh, union and non-union alternatives. They need um, to be able to be represented in corporate governance. And indeed, I think a lot of these changes are about checking what economists are calling monopsony power, which is that you know corporations have an enormous, disproportionate, and growing power over um, over workers, which is suppressing wages. Just explain to our listeners what monopsony power is. What's an example of that? Sure. So monopsony is the opposite of monopoly. So monopoly is right one one seller, many buyers. Monopsony is 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 one buyer, many sellers. And in the labor market, of course, the buyer is the employer, and the sellers are the workers. The logic so, of that is that workers don't have somewhere else to go. They've only got yeah, like one employer. It's like yeah. it's like the extreme. It could be like if Uber Uber is the only you know yeah. minicab firm essentially. If it yeah, becomes... let, let us hope we do. Let us hope we don't get to that. Um, I I think the point is that pre-distribution focuses on us on all the ways in which our our system is systemically failing um, to to provide us with a kind of solid foundation of shared prosperity on which we can build. And it's, you know, it's great to provide, you know, universal health care and um, and basic economic protections against um, job loss and the like to people on top of that. But if you don't have that solid foundation, right, as I, as I said before, you're kind of rowing against this ever faster current um, or trying to soften ever sharper edges of capitalism. Uh, we're going to hear from Professor Roberto Unger uh, in a while about pre-distribution in, in the context of technological change. Um, 
how how does it interact with other policies? You just kind of touched on this a little bit there. So, for example, is it in conflict with ideas such as the universal basic income? You know, I think it it is not in conflict with them, but it may cause us um, to think differently about them. Um, now, I I mean, I have my own views on the universal basic income, but uh, I don't think anybody who uh, advances the idea believes that it's going to be the sole source of income. And indeed, what they would like is that people feel secure enough that they have this basic source of income, that they're not fearful of technological change that causes job displacement, but but also that they feel like they can move from job to job. Um, they can invest in new skills um, without fear. And to my mind, that that is only possible if the rest of the market is working tolerably well. Am I right in thinking, Jacob, that maybe redistribution and pre-distribution interact more than we might think because we covered on an episode uh, a few episodes ago we covered the issue of higher tax rates at the top we talked to Nick Hanauer um, about his ideas on this and one of the things that he was saying is look if you taxed rich people more there'd be kind of less incentive for them to just pay themselves a shed load of money and more incentive for them to invest in their company so so maybe there's a way in which these things actually sort of interact with each other. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I, I've actually called this sort of hidden predistribution, which maybe is uh, just a way of, of putting a lipstick on the pig of redistribution. But um, but I will say that I think higher taxes on the, on the wealthy are a kind of obvious response to rising inequality, and I'm not arguing against it. So if you are putting a big tax on the sort of incremental um, uh income gains at the very top, you're, you're almost certainly reducing the incentive for the extraction of these huge salaries and huge incomes among those at the top. Another kind of hidden pre-distribution I might mention is that a lot of things that we think of as just providing a benefit to people, like, um, like uh, in the U.S., the Medicaid benefit for, for low in- uh, health insurance benefit for low-income citizens or the earned income tax credit that helps um, working families with low incomes. We see that those benefits are really big investments and in that in the next 20 or 30 years after those um, benefits are received, you get higher earnings, kids have better outcomes. They're, they're less likely to get uh, need benefits in the future. They're less likely to end up behind bars. And that those benefits more than pay them for themselves because of those investments. So higher taxes on the rich and well-designed uh, benefits that encourage opportunity for less affluent citizens are both a form of pre-distribution as well as redistribution. Now, we have a thing on the uh, podcast, Jacob, called the Jeffocracy, which is named after my co-host which is this ideal utopian future <laughs> where jeff is the supreme uh ruler um i'm sure it's been discussed at yale with with some frequency oh yeah absolutely no sure it is. um uh if he made you the minister or secretary of state for pre-distribution uh and he called you into his office on day one what's your sort of plan what, what would you do in the first hundred days or the first or even the first day well, I think the first thing I would do is try to convince Jeff that Jeffocracy is probably not the best name uh, for our political system. But the I'm going to have you sent to the tower. <laughs> exactly. I'm I'm gone already, right? I've yeah. already, I'm off with my head. But I would set up a kind of commission on worker empowerment, and and basically, to me, in. In every rich democracy, certainly the United States and the UK, the the weakness of workers is, if not 
um, the fundamental, a fundamental cause of rising inequality. And so, you know, I would I wouldn't just set up a commission. I mean, it, it would have to be that there would be big labor market reforms uh, and changes in corporate governance that would emerge out of this. Um, but I do think it's it's an area where um, we honestly don't have all the answers right now about how you would create alternatives to the traditional labor union. I mean, the traditional labor unions, um, which have lost so much ground in many rich democracies, were built around an industrial economy where workers were in one place and relatively easy to organize. And um, and in a lot of these, in a lot of countries, certainly in the United States, these traditional labor laws are actually now kind of held in place by corporations because they so advantage corporations uh, relative to labor. So to me. The place that we have to begin, if we really want to be, rebuild a um, strong pre-distributionist um, left in, the, in, in, in rich democracies, is um, bringing back a strong worker voice. To me, that's where we'll have to begin. He's piqued my interest. I'll, I'll allow you to um, convene a commission in the Tower of London. Jay, well, Jay, Hacker, Jay Hacker comes back into the corridors of power. <laughs> Well, and, and in Jeffocracy, I'm sure there will be no question time. Definitely not. De- definitely not. The supreme ruler won't. Why, why have to deal with those meddling interlopers? Exactly. Um, Jacob Hacker, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you. Ed, thank you so much. And let's keep the flame of pre-distribution alive. Well, I'm delighted to say that we're now joined uh, in Jeff's house by Professor Roberto Unger, who is Professor of Law at Harvard and former Brazilian Minister of Strategic Affairs. And, and I can honestly say, um, in sort of my experience, one of the sort of smartest and most brilliant people on the planet. Uh, and so, Roberto, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Um, so you've written this new book um, called The Knowledge Economy, and you're doing work uh, with uh, the organization Nesta about this issue. Before we get onto your solutions, part of your argument over many years has been that taxation and redistribution, which are sort of traditional tools to make society fairer, are inadequate. Yes. So this argument about the the fate of the knowledge economy uh, is, in in my mind. Uh, simply a, a, a variation on a larger theme. The larger theme is this, that the progressives in the contemporary world, for the most part, have had no project. Their project has been the humanization of the project of their conservative adversaries. They appear on the stage of history as the humanizers of the inevitable. This is a losing position in political life, whatever force most credibly embodies the cause of constructive energy, of innovation, of creation, can, commands the agenda. And the others then are restricted to the position of putting a human face on this agenda. Uh, and in particular, in this diminished role that they have occupied, the progressives have had a project almost exclusively for the demand or consumption side of the economy, not for the production or supply side, which they have abandoned to the conservatives. And their posture has been that they're out to correct the inequalities generated by the present market through retrospective and compensatory redistribution. 
by progressive taxation and social entitlements. Now, the problem is that if the inequalities are anchored in the organization of things, of the economy of production, the possibility of correcting the inequality after the fact will by its very nature be very limited because the correction would have to be massive and to be massive, it would begin to disorganize the economy. So all it can do is ameliorate at the margin. The correction of inequality and the deepening of freedom have to come from another place. They have to come from the reorganization of the structure. And the fundamental defect of the progressives has been the absence of structural imagination and of a structural project. So redistribution isn't enough. Sometimes people have um, used this phrase, um, which I use as leader, which is predistribution. And in the document that you produced with Nesta, there's, there's three different categories of change that you talk about, democratizing the economy, social inheritance, and what you call uh, a phrase you've used in other work you've done in high-energy democracy. Just for the sort of simplicity for our listeners, so if we're talking about democratizing the economy, what would one or two examples be of what that might mean, just to give people a picture of how this market economy might be different? So it is changing the, the, the fundamental mechanisms of economic decentralization, which are property and contract, uh, so that more people can have more access to more productive resources in more ways. So the traditional property right, the unified property right, which is an invention of the 19th century, has certain advantages in particular domains of economic activity. Its primary advantage is that it allows an entrepreneur to do at his own risk something in which no one else believes. But in, other, in many other areas of economic life, we would want to relativize, to limit, the absoluteness and the perpetuity of the property right, that is to create property rights that were fragmentary or temporary, in order better to achieve economic decentralization. To, to disseminate the, the knowledge economy, one of the things that we must do is to lift up the vast penumbra of small and medium-sized businesses, most of them confined to a technological and organizational rearguard. That is, they are regressive, they are archaic in their, in their practices. So we have to give them access to more advanced practice. Social inheritance, you talk about this in the, in the, in the Nesta publication. What is social inheritance so, so, and what is the key idea? So, of so, so this is an idea. The individual has to be and to feel secure in a haven of vital protected immunities and capacity-assuring endowments so that he can act unafraid uh, in the midst of this great contest, of this great experimentalism in social life, and on which he can then draw a turning... So it's the ability of people to take risk rather than... That's right. So they they can feel that they can take risks, that they can go bankrupt, that they can fail, uh, and there won't be a disaster, that they'll be able to pick themselves up again. And that's what's necessary. In these societies, the state should organize provisions that help people change their careers 
in the middle of their lives so that they can reinvent themselves. What, what do we want? Jeff and I want to do that. Yeah. a nation of people who are capable of, <laughs> self, of self-reinvention. Yeah. What, what do the provisions look like? What form do they take? Well, they can take, the, on one side, the provision for reskilling, for education in the middle of your life, and then the development of these assets, this social inheritance, on which you can draw. Now, you haven't just written about these ideas. You had an opportunity and it was an opportunity which was highly constrained to 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 try and put some of your ideas into practice as minister for strategic yeah. affairs uh, in the uh, second administration of lula in brazil yes just be i think it'd be interesting for our listeners to hear about the sort of how you found that experience of you know you you've written these very very important learned works about the world the future philosophy economics what was it like then trying to implement? Fabulous, fabulous. They they created for me a position. Some things worked, other things didn't work. It was real life. and But uh, the country was remarkable. The country is remarkably open. So I'm very ceremonious and, and formal and stiff, unlike most of my countrymen. And so I remember saying once that I... I, I found myself in the situation of being a man without charm in a country of charmers. So I, so I, so I would be I taken around. Feels. I would be taken around Brazil on the wings of the Brazilian Air Force, and dressed as I am now in a black suit with a off-white tie, and. Uh, on the street, people would ask me whether I was a Protestant pastor, uh, <laughs> but but uh, it didn't matter because it, what what I found is that they people are searching and and they and they're open to receive messages in many different forms. So I I I engage the whole country, every class of society, and I just wish it could go on forever. I've got one last question, which is you, you've been writing and thinking about. Um, these issues we've been talking about for, for uh, most Forever, of your life, yes. most of your life, decades of how we organize our societies. Yeah. For, for lots of people, this feels like a time of great danger. D- is this also a time in your view of opportunity? Immense. So the world is restless under the yoke of a dictatorship of no alternatives. Uh, Everything seems stagnant because there's so few options. But this arrangement has the properties of what the physicists call a chaotic system. It's stagnant on the surface, but susceptible to rapid reversals. And any uh, even modestly successful experiment that could be presented prophetically as the prefigurement of alternatives can have sensational resonance in the world. The method of the prophet is to have a vision about the future, but then to offer a down payment on it. And that's what we have to do in order to shake up the world. Roberto, as always, it's been incredibly stimulating. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So we're joined now to talk about the relevance of these ideas for the UK by Madeleine Gabriel, who's Head of Inclusive Innovation at the National Endowment for Science, Technology and the Arts, and Isaac Stanley, who's a researcher in her team and their co-authors of the report on democratising the knowledge economy, written with Roberto Unger. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi. Great to be here. So maybe we should start with 
what the problem of the knowledge economy is sort of here in the UK um, before going on to what we're going to do about it. Yeah, that makes sense. So the knowledge economy is all around us. I mean, we all take part in it as consumers. So I was hearing recently that there's something like three times as many smart devices in the world as there are people now. But the issue is that um, we don't all take part in it as makers and shapers. So it's quite a confined way of working. So if we just think about what the knowledge economy is, we can say it's industries where knowledge plays a crucial role in both the production and the distribution of goods. And practically speaking, that means sectors like software, pharmaceuticals, also creative industries like film and media, advanced manufacturing, video games, stuff like that. So, you know, we we would see that as in terms of like high tech creative businesses where knowledge is playing a really key role. And what's the problem in the knowledge economy in the UK context? Well, so it's really confined to specific places and also specific groups of people, people from specific backgrounds. So you could take Cambridge as a a bit of an archetypal example of a knowledge economy city. Um, They've got around 5,000 businesses in pharma, in biotech, in software in that city. Um, If you look at where um, patents are being filed in the UK, it's our most innovative city by some distance, the the number of patents per head. Um, But it's also the most unequal city in the UK and that sort of shows that the benefits of the knowledge economy aren't trickling down to everyone in society Um, and you can also see huge regional differences in terms of things like um, investment in R&D between say those sort of areas with the lowest investment like Wales compared with London and the South East you've got this real divergence in terms of where the knowledge economy is happening and who's benefiting from it. What are the concrete examples of changing this? So there's this idea that um, we could set up a social inheritance where people inherit from society rather than necessarily from their parents. And we like the idea of that being used to facilitate um, learning throughout the life cycle. Um, and at the moment, um, you know, as you probably know, um, funding for adult like learning has been slashed over the last 20 years. I saw some estimates that said it could have been cut by half, I think, over the last 10 years. Um, numbers of adult learners are really dropping. And, and that just feels completely the wrong direction, given that we, we're heading into an economy where knowledge is going to become more and more important. Um, so we're seeing and there's quite a few different proposals as to what you know, could be done um, to um, address that. I like the idea of some form of learning accounts where you've got a, a right to spend a certain amount of money on improving your skills um, over the lifetime. And you know, that stays with you rather than being attached to a particular job. Uh, sort of and key is that transition. being done somewhere? Yeah, so um, France has got um, a, a, an individual learning account at the moment where um, you earn extra credits the longer you're in work. Um, Singapore has another model where it's um, a sort of set amount of money that you can you can spend over a lifetime. I think there's a new proposal for the UK that just came out quite recently that you might have credits at different times of life. So perhaps when you just leave the university or your mid twenties, and then at forty, or and then maybe at fifty five. So that's that idea that you don't finish learning when you leave uni, but actually you can continue to develop through your your lifetime and if we talk a little bit about sort of some of the other planks of it democratizing the the economy so there's a number of things that we call for i just mentioned a couple firstly we need to transform innovation policy which in most parts of the world and in the uk is skewed to the interest of the better off so we need we call for establishing semi-public agencies that can massively increase access not just to capital but advanced technology and productive practices so who gets investment in other words yeah who gets a, who who gets that investment and and also how those investment agencies work and the Finnish innovation agency Citra is a good example of this kind of thing. So what do they do? So they've been able to, for example, in areas which have gone through sort of uh, a particular industry which is no longer competitive, and they've been able to bring together stakeholders in a particular area 
and think about okay well with the the skills and experience we do have how can we collectively plan to transition to something so for example uh in places which were very focused on kind of mobile phone industry as that has ceased to be something that those those companies can uh credibly do there are other things like video games which take can build on some of those same skills but can become a kind of really globally competitive specialism for them last question madeline if people are listening to this and think well i like the sound of this democratizing knowledge economy and i've got ideas in my own locality uh about sort of making this happen or my own workplace Mm -hmm. is that something that nesta funds um, I know you didn't bring a check this afternoon, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, I left my yeah. <laughs> um, we, we're always really interested to hear about those types of ideas. And I guess the next step for us, I mean, the report itself is very broad ranging. So the next step for us is to look at how you would really translate this agenda into into the UK context. So we're really interested in hearing people's ideas. Madeline Gabriel and Isaac Stanley, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So what do you think? Well, I think we're you know we're clearly living through one of the most exciting times of change in history with the digital revolution. I think like when when the history books are written, this is going to dwarf probably even the industrial revolution. But it's it's not been distributed evenly, and I think we've heard some ideas about how you you go about fixing that, which are, are certainly intriguing. Amen to that, and you know. The phrase is poxy, probably, uh, and, you know, it had a sort of slightly dodgy birth, if isn't that isn't mixing the metaphor too much, uh, with me kind of, you know, using it in this sort of way that it became a thing and slightly people make a joke about it. But the, but the, but the word may not be the, the best word in the world, but the, the concept is definitely really, really important, which is redistribution really matters, but you're never going to create the fair and more equal society we want unless you, like, hardwire her fairness and all that into the economy reasons to be cheerful a podcast about ideas with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd as ever we would love to hear your thoughts uh, on this week's episode or any episode in fact but if you've got anything uh, to say about pre-distribution and the ideas we've heard about the knowledge economy you can email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com you can find us on twitter at cheerful podcast uh, and on instagram as well actually and on facebook facebook.com stroke reasons to be cheerful podcast this comes from heather who says hi ed and jeff hi just wanted to say something about your episode on Englishness. I am Welsh born and raised, but I've always considered myself British first, then Welsh. I've never really given it much thought, but you made me realise, although I don't agree with the Plaid Cymru Welsh nationalist agenda, or indeed much of what goes on in the Assembly, I am proud of both my national identities, and it means a lot to me to be able to debate and engage with Welsh political issues. This is indeed something that the English seem to be missing. English national identity seems to be associated with football and or racism and that's a real shame and in a way that was what the very much what the point of the episode was so thank you for that uh, steve reeves uh brighton marathon is the subject line dear jeff and ed i've loved listening to your podcast for a while now been regularly listening since the early days i sometimes feel i would like to email you some thoughts on the subjects covered but life usually gets in the way today i just want to take time to thank you both and your contributors Yesterday, I ran the Brighton Marathon, and four episodes of your show helped me round the course. I managed to achieve my goals of a sub-five-hour run, raised loads of money for the Evelyn Award at St. Thomas's. The Park Run episode was especially enjoyable. Just run, Ed. Ignore what the others say. Thanks, gents. Keep up the great work. What do the others say? 
I don't know. I think you should run. I just don't want to run with you. What do the others say? Who are the others? What are they saying about you behind your back? That I run in a funny way. <laughs> like Forrest Gump. Yeah, in a gassy way. <laughs> um, all right, this comes from Max Clayton, who says, Hi, guys, can I suggest you do an episode on rewilding stroke natural climate solutions? I love the word rewilding. We're only four or five seconds from rewilding. Um, he says, this is the, that's a little Rihanna reference there for you. Went Ed. way over my head. Yeah. I, mean, um, I wasn't even close. Kanye. Uh, I only know it because Paul McCartney's on it. Um, this is the idea that allowing areas to return to nature, rewilding, can draw down a significant, significant amount of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. An added benefit is that it also helps solve our biodiversity crisis and will allow nature to flourish, creating a more wonderful, captivating and livable world. It strikes me that this coincides with recent climate protests. Um, I'd love to hear whether you would consider this uh, as an episode. I'll soon write to you again regarding the idea of mandatory divestment of MPs. Oh, he's left us hanging there, a bit of a cliffhanger. Does that mean we get divested? You know what? Funnily enough, we did cover this in episode 47, Ideas for the Anthropocene, Humankind Respecting the Earth. Uh, we were at Latitude and we heard from Professor Simon Lewis there. He had this idea of half Earth. I don't know if it was his idea, That's but right, you talked yes, about this yeah. idea of half Earth. But it's a good subject. Yeah. He, um, Max, by the way, adds... P.S. Ed, I had a look at your parkrun page today, and you're you're improving dramatically. So well done. Keep it up. Wow, are you just making that up, or did he really say? No, that? it's it's there. Oh, that's so kind of him. Can, does that mean you can look at my my times publicly available? I, I, I believe so. Yeah, I mean, How exciting. I'm sure you know more this about this more about this than I do. Oh, this is going to make you even more competitive, isn't it? Definitely. Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. And here with some ideas which could be uh, reasons to be cheerful if we like them. It's comedian Carmen Lynch. Hello. Hi, thanks Hi. for having me. I had to write them all down because I came in with a lot. Well, that, that's very professional. I know. I don't, I don't have any friends out here, so I had a lot of extra time. Where is home for you? New York. What's your favorite spot in New York? Maybe a park somewhere or the gym. Where's the best place to go to spot a rat? The oh, the tra every subway. train track. Yeah, every subway has one. Yeah, they're big. As too. big as dogs, some of them. They're huge. I saw only one mouse here, and it was cute. And I'm afraid of mice, <laughs> but you guys have little ones. Um, go go on then, Carmen. You brought a bunch of ideas with you. Okay. Uh, what have you got first? Um, after you use the bathroom, there's a camera that's it's not on you. It's only when you're finished, and it takes a picture of the toilet seat. And then it decides if it's clean enough, and if it is, it'll let you out. It'll unlock the door. But if it's not, you have to spray. Because a lot of people spray. It's really gross. Yes. So this would keep all the toilet seats clean. I, I'm for this. I think sometimes you'll go into a place and there'll be a sign on the wall saying, please leave the toilet in the, in the condition you found it. And what, who needs telling that? Quite a lot of people. People don't care because it's not their toilet. Uh, what do you have next, Carmen? <laughs> Um, okay, so this uh, provides a free, the government provides free nanny, personal trainer, therapy, and uh, mandatory meditation for moms, because I overhear a lot of moms like, I don't have time, oh, she probably has a lot of money, or she doesn't have it's kids. Good idea. So this way they can so come next, to your house. The next frontier of the welfare state. 
It's good. Yeah, and then if they they can't complain, oh, I can't work out. I don't have time. No, we sent someone to your house and you denied them. Just moms. No, but I mean, I think moms deserve it. You know, more than dads. And oh, yeah, that's true. No, uh, no, I mean, I'm agreeing yeah. with you. Um, and then also some kind of system, like if if someone's depressed or or suicidal, there's like a an immediate like psychiatrist like that comes over, um, with puppies and candy <laughs> we like, like definitely so like puppies yeah. and candy I, mean, I think pets do a lot for pets are brilliant yeah. Yeah, yeah i wouldn't be that I concerned thought... about them having a medical qualification if they had puppies and, and sweets you've always been pro pet yeah they, they, they i mean there are statistics aren't there about just sort of stroking a cat will lower your blood pressure is that true yeah they're supposed to be good for breakups and stuff too i've never had a dog but i i think they're cool yeah i think they would help well, we like this service. I, I, I'm you definitely do? in favor right. of this service. Really, definitely, definitely. Right. <laughs> okay, here's a, an odd one. Um, not that they're As opposed all, to the yeah, other exactly. ones. Yeah. Um, no makeup for women over uh, from 20 to 30, every other year, from ages 20 to 30. We need to cut down on selfies, I think. Too much, right? Too much pressure on who's pretty right now. What? Is that good? Do you like that one? Yeah. Oh. So, so no makeup every, so like every other year. Right. Yeah. So and you can wear makeup when you're 20, but not right, right, right. And uh, and then, <laughs> right. are you taking a selfie? <laughs> well, I just thought you know you made me think of a selfie. Oh, okay. How does does this not? Don't you still have the problem of people taking these makeup free selfies where they make sure the lighting is just right and they apply I don't filters? Think they want to because I think you know. Young women in their 20s just want to take pictures when they're wearing makeup and stuff. And I think, well, this is the main thing. I think it would it would make your personality more important when you go to a bar and you don't feel pretty. I think you'd have to work on your sense of humor and your personality. That's a good point. Right? Yeah. And it would make you more vulnerable. And I think sometimes people aren't as vulnerable as they could be. What do you think? Would would you be up for going makeup free for one year? No, uh, but well, you know, for men, I don't know what. Why? I, I don't what, know what why men... is there this double standard that men can't wear makeup and women can? Well, we 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 can. It's just we don't really come on, do we? No. I mean, I used to wear makeup for TV interviews. I used to quite like it. There was this very good thing where they would go oh, <laughs> all yes. the, all down your sort of face. It was like a sort of, you know, the sort of Ghostbusters thing. Yeah. I thought about it like the sort of Ghostbusters kind of zapping thing. It would like go, and then it would, it was just great. Well, you've got a big birthday coming up, Ed. Right. You think I can? That's maybe what I could get you. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you just like the sound. There's something that was very even. That was what's yeah. good about it. Very exciting. I have more. Do you want yeah, that? Yeah, we want more. Yeah. We want okay. more, definitely. Um, snoozing is over. No more snoozing. Um, it you snooze, could, you lose. Yeah, because I think it's better for couples. I don't know if anyone has a a couple who snoozes a lot. It, it creates anger for the other person who's trying to sleep. Mm. So no more snoozing. You mean like alarm keep snoozing? hitting the alarm every three minutes? Oh, yeah, snoozing, yeah. No. I'm no. not a snoozer. Are you a snoozer? I am a big snoozer, but usually by the time I'm snoozing, my wife has already gone into the loft to sleep in the spare bed because of my ah. snoring. I'm, I'm so it's not, not a factor. Re- I've never been a snooze button person, actually. But do you do you wake up full of vim and vigor? No, to I don't. Embrace all, I hate mornings. I despise mornings. So why not hit snooze? Delay it a little. It just, it just sort of it doesn't really... The, the snooze isn't long enough. Yeah, I mean, it's different when you if you 
if somebody lives alone because they're not disrupting the other. I'm a very light sleeper, so snoozing is a problem. But are you, are you a morning person? Because if you're a comedian, presumably you you, you keep seem strange like a morning hours. person. I, I am. It's yeah. weird. No, but I'll sleep. Um, for me, sleeping in is nine a.m. It's not. You know, it's not noon. Okay. So I'm still sort of a morning person. But I still go to bed like at one. Don't you think Americans are more likely to be morning people? Yes. I think. Yeah, I yeah. know it's sad. I don't, uh, because you're like, you know, we yay, are very happy. we're going USA. out the world. USA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're like, let's get the coffee. Like, yeah, we're very excited. I mean, you couldn't have imagined the It's Morning in America Reagan advert being in Britain, could you? It's Morning in, it's morning in Britain. Everybody's feeling really optimistic. You can imagine it as well, negative campaigning. Good. Oh, no, I it's mean, Morning yeah, in oh Britain. No, exactly. <laughs> oh, God, it's morning again in Britain. But things shut down very quickly out here at night, I've noticed. There's yeah. no late night That's delis. a nightmare. That's mm. the great thing about New York. Yeah. yeah. You can do anything, you know. Is there anything that you prefer or is there any little thing that you've come across that you think we wish, uh, wish we had that back in the states at uh, this podcast <laughs> <laughs> apart from this your podcast. tube is amazing it yeah. really our mta is just blah it is yeah. terrible but i've, I've had yeah. american friends who are freaked out by the fact that we have upholstered seats on the tube on the tube here upholstered and they literally come every two minutes and then you have those like they're not even seats they're like lean in for your bottoms you like that i like those too, yeah. <laughs> you like the lean <laughs> Um, I think there should be, this is mostly for stand-ups, I think there should be some kind of recording, de- like when you try and record someone on your phone and you hit record, it goes, some loud guy just goes, I record, I'm recording, I'm recording, because so many people record at shows and it's not fair. Or like if someone's trying to make a sex tape and you hit record, it it's going, I record. I've never had that experience know. myself, but... Uh, but then I uh, don't know, I yeah. don't, you have to help me finish. Well, I mean, maybe Come I have and I just don't know. I don't know. Uh, what if what if that person's letting you record? Then how do you stop the voice? I mean, we tried to bootleg that Icelandic I you could comedian. Say we tried to make a sex tape. Then. <laughs> <laughs> I've never no memory of that. Not to my knowledge, we've never we've never taped it. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, um, we did try to bootleg that Icelandic comedian, though, didn't we? Well, you tried to bootleg that, and I did. Oh, try to explain to you. I tried to explain to you that that's frowned upon. Yeah, it was part bootlegging. Of the, it was part of the sights and sounds of Iceland. Yeah, it didn't go. Do you well. get? Have you been illegally recorded? comedic comedic wise i mean uh from the audience i don't know right but i mean i've stopped people because you can see the light the little light on their phone or um i mean i have this thing of people taking um pictures of me sometimes the pictures i don't mind so much it's when you're working on a joke no 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 but i'm not like on the stage i'm just like sitting on the tube picking my nose whatever you know what i mean and somebody tries to take a photo but you generally intervene and offer people a selfie yeah and then i really embarrassingly in my constituency i don't know why i'm confessing this i intervene i did made an intervention with somebody who's trying to take a picture of me and he was he was trying to take a picture of his girlfriend who was sitting (laughs) opposite opposite him so he looked really like he i i sort of bounded up to his table to say, oh, do you fancy a photo? And he looked at me like I was absolutely crackers. Uh, and was like, and then I, it was like he, the girlfriend was in an alcove, so I couldn't see the alcove. And he was like, yeah. so then I pretended that I was offering to take a picture of the two of them together. I mean, it was, it was like, it was mega orcs, honestly. Oh it was really, it was just really, it was, it was like hugely awkward. I mean, the worst is when you forget to turn off your phone and you, they can hear the click. That you're taking a picture of yes, them. Yes, yes. No, the people, the people literally sit there on the tube and go, Yeah. 
at me. So can and you tell if somebody's pretending to read, but actually they're taking well, a picture? Well, I mean, like with the guy in the restaurant, I thought he was trying to take a picture and it was like, it was nearly a catastrophe. But uh, I mean, I think one thing I've done is now I sort of do it back. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good idea. Yeah. I'm going to do that if I ever feel yeah. that way. And then see what, but then it's the kind of, then people are kind of, it breaks the ice and they say, oh, can I have a photo? Or they say, I don't know what you're doing, take a picture of me, I'm not interested in a picture of you. Do you ever, like, let your conscience decide? Like, sometimes I'm like, oh, I want to take a picture of that guy with that weird hat, and then I go, my brain just goes, would you like it if someone did that to you? And then I just go, no. Yeah, I think those are the only ones that really make sense. We love the ideas. And Carmen, if people want to find you on Twitter? I'm a Carmen Comedian. Very simple. Great. Twitter and Instagram, yeah. And you'll be back in the UK sometime soon? Yeah, I hope uh, at the end of the year again, hopefully. Come back. We have nice tubes. Thank you. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, it's Easter weekend coming up. Doing anything nice? Well, going on an Easter egg hunt, probably. Park, bit of park run. What about you? My wife and uh, my son will be coming back from Chicago, so I'm going to go meet them at the airport with a big sign. Aww. Yeah. Maybe you should do like one of those funny signs that people do at like, you know, demonstrations. Yes. What like? Remember me? (laughs) With a big arrow pointing to yourself. (laughs) How about that? Yeah, all right. I'll I'll get my felt tips out. Yeah. And talking of signs, demonstrations and all that, I we I'm going to be part of an event next week. I'm quite excited about this with Greta Thunberg, the sixteen year old who went on strike as a school pupil in Sweden, you know, led to a million people going out uh, last month uh, across the world. We've got the Extinction Rebellion going on, as you'll have uh, seen in London and oh, elsewhere. That's, that's fun. You've got to meet Greta Thunberg. I am. I am. I, I interviewed her, but only down the phone. And one of the things I remember about it was she she got her parents to give up their jobs because of the damage their jobs were doing to the environment. I can't remember what her dad did, but her her mum was an opera singer and she felt her mum was travelling on aeroplanes too often, so she changed her career. I I can't remember what to do. She is incredibly impressive. There was a footage of her speaking to, I think, European Parliament legislators uh, uh, the other day. And, uh, yeah, no, I I think it's really exciting. And I sort of feel a a little bit guilty because when we talked about the semi-naked protests in the House of Commons, the purpose behind it was Extinction Rebellion and, and climate stuff we didn't really talk about that but anyway we're going to be meeting um i'm going to be meeting greta and, she, and look fundamentally uh, whatever the methods they're right that politicians are not doing nearly enough on this issue we've got to have much much greater urgency we should thank our guests yep i'd like to thank jay hacker roberto unger isaac stanley and madeline gabriel and thanks to Carmen Lynch for sharing her ideas for reasons to be cheerful. Emma Caution produces our podcast uh, this week with support from Samantha Bruff. Joel Pierce is our researcher, and he's backed up with by Joe Kenyon. James Deacon made our I Don't Said Seed composed the music, and the artwork was designed by Emily Power. Can, can I tell you something that you might not know? Yeah. I've done this end of... Uh, I've done my end of the episode from bed. Wow. It's it's a tiny hotel room, and I thought it's the most comfortable place in the room, so I felt very much like, you know, John Lennon and Yoko Ono at one of their bed-ins for peace. Did you see me and you as a sort of John and Yoko combination? Let's do it, yes. Maybe we could have a bed on stage at the live shows on the South Bank. That could be a nice theatrical device, no? I bet you eat toast in bed and get crumbs in, don't you? 
I do not. This is worse than this is worse than when I accused you of being a gassy person. Ooh, I don't think I don't. I don't. That is a that is a terrible slur. He's been a bedhead. He's been a gassy person. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Mm-hmm.